Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in banter, Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. Hi, Leslie. I've got some anger brewing for one of today's segments, so get ready. All right. Well, Dan, Mercury is in retrograde, and perhaps coincidentally, it's been a bizarre week in TV news. To your point, Netflix canceled one day at a time. The Virgin Bachelor didn't get engaged, but may have lost his V-card. Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin were among 50 people indicted for allegedly cheating the collegiate system in order to have their kids admitted into top universities. South by Southwest came and went, and HBO inked big overall deals with Mike Judge and Amy Adams. It's a bizarre week indeed. <sighs> and to think that I was formerly angry about the whole college cheating whatever ethics fraud scandal, and now that anger has just moved out of me and I've moved on to other anger, which is really great, you know, that I can always find a place to displace or misplace my anger onto. Well, bottle it up, Dan, because we'll get there. But <laughs> every week on the podcast, Dan and I go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news. With all that out of the way, let's dive right into it. Number one. For our first topic, it's the story that has the entire town talking, the college cheating scandal. This week, Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin were among the 50 parents and coaches who were indicted and stand accused of cheating the collegiate system in order for their kids to be admitted into top universities. Dubbed Operation Varsity Blues, <laughs> and I seriously kid you not, the alleged scheme involved parents paying the founder of a college prep business to have someone take exams for their children, or paying bribes to coaches or administrators to have their kids seen as athletic recruits. To get into the weeds of the scandal, we're happy to welcome back to the podcast THR senior TV writer Michael O'Connell. Thanks for joining us, Mikey. Thank you. I feel like I'm the crime correspondent. But look, we're glad to have you here. And when it comes to this particular story, the only thing I can say about people who have to write about it is, I don't want your life. <laughs> If you could see the expressions that they're both giving me right now, they're not impressed with my The Beak impression. There have been so many awful renditions of that over the last few days from so many people. Then I am just happy to add mine to the pile. So, so Mikey, first of all, and before we go and then do exactly that, how ridiculous is it that we're treating this as the Felicity Huffman, Lori Loughlin scandal? I mean, they're the most recognizable people on the list of 50-some names of people who've done this. And they're widely recognizable television talent. And they play, like, sweet TV moms. So it's just, like, too good. They also both played moms to, like, dysfunctional twins. And they also both played storylines that played out very similar to this on I know. House, we're, we're finding on Desperate that Housewives. Yeah. So, okay, so you're totally down with us sort of categorizing this as... This is a TV story. I mean, the... the Faces of this scandal are television stars, and one of them is the lead on, I think, the most watched show on the Hallmark Channel, which is a wildly successful enterprise that no one talks about because it's kind of, like, boring and, like folksy, whatever. Uh, and then Felicity Huffman, she's a prestige actress. People love her. I'm just warning you, we're going to do a full podcast start to finish when Hallmark finally does their first Hanukkah movie this winter. So if we've been ignoring Hallmark, it's only temporary. Okay. Are they really doing a Hanukkah movie? I believe so. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's, I feel like... yeah. There was speculation that that was going to happen this year, but I mean, we're in March guys. Well, I'm guessing Lori Loughlin is not going to be cast in the <laughs> Hallmark Hanukkah movie. Oh, 
Well, just as well. well. Okay, so first of all, what did these two famous actresses actually do for people who have, say, been under a rock all week? Allegedly, so, uh, Felicity Allegedly. Huffman and her quote-unquote spouse, because William H. Macy was not named in the suit, she had people take tests for her child and was lining it up for another one of her children. And Lori Lachlan paid, gosh, like two or three tuitions worth in bribe money to get her daughter into USC. And based on her daughter's social media, she has like nearly two million followers. She didn't even want to go to school. That is the true tragedy here is that Lori Lachlan's daughter was taking a place at USC that could have been filled by some other rich family's child who really wanted to attend. So... I mean, my question is, what kind of lasting impact is this going to have on both actresses? Well, I mean, this is just such a delightful story. I This is going to have legs. Cable news is all over it. They love when people in Hollywood get associated with this sort of, I don't know. I mean, whatever. It's a scandal. Yeah. The lasting issue here is that it's a PR nightmare for the outlets that employ both of these women. Felicity Huffman wrapped her work on Ava DuBernay's miniseries about the Central Park Five, but they're dying to get that in for Emmys. It's premiering within 24 hours of the window. Yeah, it premieres um, May 31st. Yes. And I mean, there's a ton of recognizable actors in there, and I'm sure a lot of great performances, but Felicity Huffman was going to be a centerpiece of that Emmy campaign. And Lori Loughlin, I mean, she's basically the face of the squeaky clean network. And how you approach that, crime isn't binary. Like, it's such a, like, sliding scale. And, like, this isn't as bad as what's going on with Jesse Smollett, but it's awful. And, like, they clearly have to be losing their minds and, like, ripping their hair out over this. Yeah, it's important that we sort of emphasize that while this is a delicious, fun scandal, it's also a, a portrait of wealthy privilege in America and kind of the rigging of an already rigged system and that it's infuriating on levels that go beyond whether or not you have to figure out an Emmy campaign for Felicity Huffman. Wildly infuriating because more than 50 people are doing effed up things with money to get their children into schools. Yeah, the tip of the icebergness of this is, is yes. very clear and unquestionable and yet you put two recognizable actresses on the front and we kind of come to view them as the iceberg. And and the lack of subtlety is just, it's exquisite. <laughs> I, I did love how very, very readable those filings were when they came out when the news broke. Uh, it was this was almost like the FBI feels bad that everything else is going wrong in the country. So they were like, let's just like put this together for everyone and they'll just love it. They had 200 people working on this. It was almost like they just hired a Shonda Rhimes or a Aaron Sorkin to come in and write it. It was so compulsively readable and every bit of it was more... I don't want to say ridiculous, so I'll just say idiotic than the bit before. I mean, that's also the next arc of this story. There is Someone no is doubt in my mind that in the next five years we are not going to see a miniseries. God, if only from Ryan Murphy, probably not. But someone's going to do this. It's just too tempting. Well, I mean, the joke initially when the news broke that it was basically an American crime season, not American crime story, but the second season of American crime, which was the best season of that show, was about kind of failing academic integrity and standards at a prep school in Ohio. So there's... I mean, there's... wasn't Felicity Huffman in that season? Of course she was. She was in all the seasons because 
she she's played created. a corrupt educator. She did, and <laughs> she was fantastic. And also, she was at least initially fairly wicked. And we all thought, "Ooh, there, they're casting her against type." And maybe not. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Look, on one hand, if you want to be generous, you can go the sort of David Mamet approach that her greatest sin is loving her family too much. Also, fraud. But <laughs> but loving her family too much as well. I don't know. So, if we had to guess. What are we kind of looking at as the extreme level of what the punishment they could actually literally face, as opposed to the, you know, is Laurie Lachlan going to continue to be invited to Hallmark TCA parties? I think that jail time is feasibly on the table. I'm not a lawyer. You're not. Uh, I'm not not a lawyer. But the fact that these women got booked tells me, non-lawyer, that they mean business about this. People like to make an example of stuff like this. And Laurie Lachlan's Bail was like a million dollars, wasn't it? Which is strange to me, the disparity between the two bails. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there was a disparity in their financial expenditures towards committing the fraud they committed also. So I I felt like that was a kind of scaled thing. But I think straight cheating is tackier than spending money, but that's just me. (laughs) Well, that feels like a good note to end this segment on. We'll continue to monitor that story as more information becomes available. Mikey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Number two. For our second topic, let's take a look at the highs and lows of the South by Southwest Festival. To do so, we're pleased to welcome THR TV writer, reporter Bryn Sandberg to the podcast. Welcome, Bryn. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Bryn, you're just back from Austin, where you covered film and TV events and moderated a couple of panels. What stands out for you? I am just back from Austin, had a lot of tacos and uh, <laughs> and girl. sat through some some great panels and premieres. So the festival kicked off on Friday, of course, with some panels during the day. And one of the most newsworthy ones, I would say, was Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman of Quibi. And they were there interviewed by Dylan Byers. And what Katzenberg essentially said was he defended his good friend Steven Spielberg in the great in the great uh, Netflix theater battle, claiming that Spielberg, of course, didn't campaign against Netflix and has no plans to block the streamer from awards contention. And then he sort of transitioned back to his own company and the pair announced some new short form projects coming to Quibi, including this buzzy Snapchat uh, Evan Spiegel drama. So we're looking forward to that. And then, of course, that night was the Us premiere, which was definitely the hottest ticket of the event. And that's the new Jordan Peele. That's the new Jordan Peele universal thriller starring Lupita Nyong and Winston Duke and Elizabeth Moss, who are all there. What did you think? Is it terrifying? I mean, it. you know, it's not as terrifying as I thought it was going to be. I will say that. I know that sitting in the audience, I can attest that there were plenty of gasps and shrieks and squeals throughout. But there was also a lot of laughter. And what I was surprised by was how funny the movie actually was. And Winston Duke sort of provides a lot of that comic relief throughout. It's odd that we've now gone kind of full circle on Jordan Peele to the point where we're surprised when a Jordan Peele movie is also funny. (laughs) Whereas the whole thing about Get Out was, wait, it's also scary. Well, but But did you like it? That's a great point. Um, I did like it. I did. And I think most people in the audience walked out feeling scared, of course, highly entertained, but also sort of noodling on the underlying message of the film because it's not as clear cut as, as Get Out, Jordan's, you know, prior film. So there was a lot of discussion about the underlying meeting and and what 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 Jordan Peele did give us after the the screening ended was he said that you know part of why he wanted to make the movie was that he feels like we're living in a time where we fear the other and he wanted to suggest that maybe the monster we needed to look at had our own faces. Maybe we 
we, you know, were the, the evil was in us, he said. So, of Very course, there deep. is a, it's not just, it's not Here just it. a whore. There's, you know, some meteor message behind it as well. And then I would say other highlights of the week included uh, Trevor Noah panel with his fellow Daily Show correspondents, where they, of course, discussed the challenges of covering the news cycle in the era of Trump. And having to, you know, throw out scripts last minute and and rewrite things. So they talked with Jake Tapper about that. And he also noted that the show has become edgier recently and that he's less afraid to make jokes that are going to piss some people off because he thinks that that might be what we need. And that if we're not laughing about what's going on today, then we might go crazy. So that was sort of. And Dan, you're a big Trevor Noah fan too, right? Oh, I thought you were going to say, Dan, you're already going crazy. And I was going to be like, yes, that's <laughs> Well, no, true. I mean, we know what it's like to throw out scripts. We did that with this episode, but. No, no. I mean, yes, he's, it's a great show at this point. It really is. And there still is a whole subset of people who are like, oh, it's not Jon Stewart. It, a, it hasn't been Jon Stewart for years. So grow up, move on. B, it didn't just suddenly become a good show. It started off as a good show. Now it's become a very good show. When you're in a sort of crowd environment, do people love Trevor? <laughs> people did. It was one of the biggest lines of the festival. Okay. Yes. I, I find that reassuring because he had really an impossible job following Jon Stewart, who people still worship as a god, even though he hasn't done anything in years now. And and he has done so well with it. I'm glad that people are. Yeah, him. I will say I, I spoke with a South By programmer afterwards and said, what were the craziest panels of the of the weekend and it was it was Trevor and it was AOC who was there of course to <laughs> um to promote her new documentary um Knock Down the House. So and then other panel highlights I would say Marty Noxon. She delivered a, a keynote and in it of course she she hinted that there may be a potential second season of Sharp Objects to come. Uh and I think people thought <laughs> that's I mean she <laughs> is has this a, big little lies again. She has an overall deal at Netflix. How does how is that going to work? I mean, Amy Adams just signed one with HBO, but I mean, how would that even work at this point? Well, no, I feel like at a certain point, HBO starts kind of looking at the award season from winter and they start going, oh, suddenly Patricia Arquette won all of those awards we assumed Amy Adams was going to get. Maybe it's a drama now. I don't know. And not not for me to accuse HBO of category fraud again. <laughs> but also, well, it doesn't exist yet, so... No fraud currently. She just mentioned that her and Gillian Flynn, of course, a writer on the series, said that they had some thoughts on it. So there's no formal plans at HBO, but it's something that, you know, it's just talk at the moment. Yeah. If, I, if I'm Netflix, I, I'm a little upset because we just shelled out all this money for Marty Noxon. And the first thing she does is go back to HBO. Well, also, didn't Amy Adams just sign on to do something new? Poisonwood Bible. Okay. Yeah. So... But that's all. She hasn't a first look deal at HBO. So, I mean, she's there. Well, but she also needs to make movies. She still hasn't won an Oscar. Her, so she's got to do that too. But keep in mind, Marty's someone who could have multiple shows right. running at the same time. And... She could definitely leave multiple shows. <laughs> <laughs> it worked very well, I heard, on, on Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce and, and Unreal. Then, yeah. And then in terms of other other panel highlights, Gwyneth Paltrow was there to speak with Poppy Harlow at CNN. And and the, the most hilarious part of that session was, of course, she gave a an update on her ongoing quest to get advice from Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder. And there was a Wall Street Journal article that came out at the end of last year where she had said that she sent 
Jeff an email and he just didn't respond. And so that, of course, got picked up everywhere. It apparently got um, Jeff's attention (laughs) and she received an email from him. The subject was Jeff Bezos and the sender was Jeff Bezos. And (laughs) the body of the email said, Jeff Bezos, the Wall Street Journal tells me that you want to talk to me. (laughs) So then she wrote him back. They had a little bit, you know, they corresponded a bit. And then she wrote him again and said, you know, I would love to pick your brain, sit down with you for an hour and pick your brain, something along those lines. And then he never wrote her back. So um, Bezos continues to ghost That sounds like an over-ask to me. I mean, an hour of Jeff Bezos' time seems like a lot. If you say, could I have 15 (laughs) minutes on FaceTime, that seems more plausible to me. He currently has a couple other things on his (laughs) plate right now. And she did, yes, she noted that he was a bit busy, I think alluding to... um, Everything? uh, Everything going on with... (laughs) With him at the moment. And then and then turning to, to TV, she made a, a deal for a Netflix show, the, a Goop Netflix show that's going to come out in late 2019 or early 2020, she said. And she talked about how Netflix has been barrier breaking and, you know, has always sort of um, been ahead of the curve and and that she plans to appear in all six episodes to varying degrees. So we will see what that means. And that it's going to be an opportunity for them to dive deeper in some, into some of these subjects that Goop likes to look into and they'll do on-air experiments and that sort of thing. So TBD what that's going to look like. But she did also joke that they are, quote, leaving the vagina out of it. Don't worry. So wow, <laughs> not to be too um, concerned. <laughs> that's a selling point, I think. I'm not I sure see what the marketing that is, materials already. Yeah. Um, it's on billboards all along Sunset Boulevard. I mean, look, it is the the whole steaming vagina thing is the thing that people make fun of Goop for first when they go through the list of things to make fun of Goop for. So I understand why that would be kind of a reassurance they would want to make. But I'm sure there are also some people who are like, wait, well, screw that. Why do I want to watch this anymore? So... (laughs) You're choosing what kind of audience you want to go for with that. I think that's very true. And then the last panel that I will highlight was one that I actually moderated with with Fargo and Legion creator Noah Hawley. We got to chat on the last day of the TV and film section of the, the festival, and we talked about his decision to end Legion and the upcoming season of Fargo that's starring Chris Rock and his featured directorial debut, which is going to come out probably in the fall of this year. It's an astronaut drama starring Natalie Portman and John Hamm. So that's something to look forward to. I wonder if it's potentially going to be an awards movie with that release date. And I asked him about the Disney Fox merger since he has both TV deals and film deals at Fox companies and how it's going to impact him in his work. And he essentially said in terms of being approached by Disney Plus to make content for them, he says he hasn't yet. And he sort of explained that he thinks FX may be a little too protective of him, and that's why they haven't approached him. And then the one thing that he did reveal was that he was called in to meet with Marvel chief Kevin Feige, who asked him if he was still working on his Doctor Doom movie. And Noah said, well, should I still be working on my Doctor Doom movie? <laughs> Surely you should know this, Kevin. Right? No? Okay. So Noah gave him the script and said, you know, you should check it out and let me know what you think. And he hasn't received a call yet. So he he's sort of in limbo at this point. It's, of course, one of those properties that was, you know, owned at Fox, but is moving, going to move back to Marvel when the steel closes on March 20th. So TBD on, on the Doctor Doom. I like that the big takeaway of this is all about sort of multi-million billionaires who don't respond quickly to uh, emails. <laughs> That is that is the take. It's like, South by in a nutshell. I can also totally imagine Kevin Feige sending out an email with the subject line, Kevin Feige. <laughs> 
Well, and then other than that, the other, the big debuts were on the film side, two Seth Rogen movies, Long Shot, where he, he stars with Charlize Theron, and Good Boys, which is essentially Jacob Tremblay and some other 11-year-old boys saying fuck a lot and playing with their, uh, their parents' sex toys. So look forward to that. By the um, way, the studio is entirely welcome to that blurb that Bryn <laughs> just gave you. It's uh, Jacob Tremblay and a bunch of 11-year-old boys saying fuck and playing with their parents' sex toys. So there you are. That is your log line for this one. Available. And then the one that I wanted to call out was Olivia Wilde's feature directorial debut, Booksmart, which is fantastic. That comes out end of May, which will be a big deal for her. And then on the TV side, it was What We Do in the Shadows and, and Rami, I think, were the biggest titles, which Dan, you reviewed. <laughs> I did. I, re- I reviewed Rami, which I which I love. I think it is a, a special, unique show. Uh, for listeners who don't know, the conceit is Rami Youssef is the creator, and it's about a 20-something Muslim guy living in New Jersey, and that's what it is. And he, he's not incidentally Muslim. He's practicing, observant. He's questioning his faith, and it's very in-depth on that. Gerard Carmichael, one of the executive producers, and it's a really good show you should look for in April. And what we do in the shadows, Tim Goodman reviewed for us, and he loved. I, I think I liked it somewhat less than some people did, but it, it still has some big laps in it. So, well, the question, of course, is how does it compare to the film, right? And I and I prefer the film personally. I prefer the characters in the film. The tone is very, very similar. And again, there are big laughs in it, large laughs. Did you watch it at all? Or? I did not. I mean, some of the issue with South By is they have all these premieres at the same time, of course, right? So I think that was either during us or during uh, Booksmart or one of those other So did premieres. you ask know at all about Fargo and, and the fourth season and, and why he's doing all these other things when he should be making a fourth season of Fargo? <laughs> well, he's currently, there's three weeks left of production on Legion and he is in the writer's room on Fargo and he's editing his movie. So that's sort of, he's got all of those balls in the air. But uh, he did talk about how it wasn't a struggle to get Chris Rock to sign on, evidently. He was writing it with Chris in mind, and he sort of went to FX and John Landgraf, and they loved the idea. And he, I think he invited him on set when he was filming his his movie, which is called Lucy in the Sky. And they were filming at some bowling alley, and Chris just dropped by and... They got along really well, and he was excited to do it. And then it wasn't until six months later that Chris actually got a script. And luckily, he still liked it. (laughs) So he will be, I think, diving into that more in the coming months, of course. (sighs) I just hate to go all George R. R. Martin on him. You know, stop doing other things and finish the damn books. But I still would like Noah Hawley to stop doing other things and make another season of Fargo. (laughs) But that's just me. Tell me about the tacos quickly. The tacos. They were great. I got Veracruz tacos. Have you had those? Apparently, they're the they have a food truck just down the street um, in East Austin, and it was delicious. Well, you and I will be there this summer for the ATX TV Festival, which is also a great event, and there's queso. Mm -hmm. Well, Bryn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Moving to our next topic, let's talk The Bachelor. Number three. Season 23 of the ABC reality favorite wrapped this week, and in a rating surprise, actually topped This Is Us over on NBC. This season's star, Colton Underwood, started the season as a virgin and ended the season without a marriage proposal. To explain why that's a big deal for the franchise, please welcome The Hollywood Reporter's East Coast digital lead editor and resident Bachelor reporter, Jackie Strauss. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Jackie, you've been covering this franchise for years. What made this season so unique? 
So this season felt very authentic. And look, I'm sure there are listeners who might roll their eyes at me saying that, but (laughs) hear me out. (laughs) So this is the 23rd season of The Bachelor. And for the first time in really the last 10 years, if we want to just erase Juan Pablo's disaster from our memories, Colton is really the first Bachelor who questioned this concept of an engagement in the end. I mean, I sat down with Colton and Cassie, who refer to themselves as boyfriend and girlfriend. And I have to say, they had a very realistic outlook on what they wanted to get out of this. I mean, their relationship played out in the most dramatic fashion ever, to quote Chris Harrison. But I think we can all acknowledge that it's pretty relatable for them to want to just date after knowing each other for only a couple of months. I mean, when they broke it down, the amount of time they actually spent alone was just a few days. So for the second year in a row, we got this unpredictable ending. And I think his season really raises the bar for the franchise in terms of what viewers can expect. And it's almost this open invitation or challenge, I guess, for future leads to figure out how they can bend this format and break these so-called unwritten rules and work this show to their advantage because they seem happy. And then guess what? Now we no longer have to talk about this guy being a virgin. (laughs) Okay, so, so they've done it. I want graphic details here, Jackie. So he was very candid this whole season. And on the live show, if you were playing a drinking game for how many times Chris Harrison said the word virgin, you would be very drunk. And then when it comes to him actually answering the question, he becomes a gentleman. And he says, look, now there's someone else involved, so I I don't really want to talk about it anymore. Um, But on the show, he said viewers could use their imagination. So Chris Harrison jumps in and says, I take that as a yes. So I think we kind of all got the answer. We didn't really know we wanted to know for this long in our lives. (laughs) Well, other than it forming a drinking game, what difference did Colton's virginity make in terms of how the season played out? And and was it every week as relentlessly virgin heavy? It started off really heavy in the beginning. And I think even Chris Harrison said, you know, it's a big cliche going into the show on night one. They were, you know, all the women kind of had their intro jokes about it. But then it kind of faded into the background and would just come up again as he was getting into these relationships with women, and they wanted real answers. And then there was this really powerful episode where one of the contestants spoke out about being a sexual assault survivor, and he kind of responded by explaining he was in love with someone who was a survivor, and he was on the other end of that relationship, and that's part of the reason why he is a virgin at then age 26. And then it kind of quieted again until the end with Cassie, and Cassie also spoke about the fact that she was nervous that the world was going to know she wasn't a virgin, which I think surprised people because I think most viewers assume that people on these shows are not virgins. But in the end, I think it probably led to this whole super emotional fence jump fiasco because he was taking this really, really seriously. Like when it comes to the fantasy suites, most of these leads have sex with two out of the three people they've kind of gone on record to say. And I think it was pretty clear Colton was only going to do that with one person. And then she broke up with him. So it definitely put this big pressure on him in the end. Well, Jackie, what do we know about the next Bachelorette, which is an announcement that also happened this week? Yeah, so Hannah B., as she's known to Bachelor Nation, which is the collective term for the audience who watches the show. She's actually the first Bachelorette who wasn't a top four finalist from a previous season. She placed seventh. So it means she had a little less screen time and 
her breakup wasn't as dramatic that people are used to. So it's an interesting choice. She's a beauty queen from Alabama, and on the show, she was known for starting drama with another beauty queen competitor and for struggling with her words, and those two traits are not typical for your Bachelorette lead. I'm not sure if either of you caught her debut on the Bachelor finale, did you? Collectively allow us to say no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, it was um, a little cringy to watch because she struggled with her words again and kind of asked Chris, where do I stand and what do I say? So, you know, the audience on Twitter obviously had a lot to say about that, but they were kind of split. Some of them thought it was endearing that she's less rehearsed than you usually see, and others were questioning how could she possibly lead this show. So the interesting thing is that The Bachelorette's on an earlier schedule this year. It premieres earlier on May 13th, and they start filming it this weekend. So she has even less time for any of this training. So, I mean, it's It definitely seems like it's going to be a messier season, but hey, that could be exciting to watch. Well, all the virginity stuff aside, and here we're going to ask you now to speak on behalf of Bachelor Nation, which I assume you are authorized to do. Was this season well-received? I I mean, does ratings have any connection whatsoever to whether or not it was actually a good season of TV? So it actually actually was a good season of TV because it, it wasn't typical. I think that the people who watch this show, you get so used to expecting the same kind of every week, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And he kind of blew that up. So, you know, as I think Bachelor Nation really liked that. I mean, there's there's half of Bachelor Nation reads the spoilers and half doesn't. And I'm not sure if reading the spoilers makes people more excited to watch or less. It doesn't seem to clearly hurt the audience, the ratings. So... Even if you kind of have an idea of how it's going to end, this still had a few surprises in store. So I think it it I think it was an overall successful season. He certainly is much more liked than the last bachelor, if you remember his name was Ari. <laughs> and we don't. Um <laughs> <laughs> hey, I actually totally do because because I grew up occasionally watching the Indy 500, so I completely remember vividly Ari's father, Ari Lyondike. So I absolutely remember that was a person who existed on a TV show. <laughs> there we go. Well, in a, in a larger sense, Jackie, you just interviewed ABC's unscripted head, Rob Mills, about the state of all things Bachelor up now at THR.com slash Bachelor. But what are your takeaways? What does he say about the state of The Bachelor or the many different incarnations of this this show? Well, it sounds like you guys will be very excited to hear that they're always talking about ways to spin off this franchise. I mean, if I could quote him, he said, you'll definitely see some new iteration in The Bachelor universe in the next few years. So I know you two are very excited to hear that. But I mean, <laughs> what I take away from him is that there's no sign of this of this train slowing down. I mean, he understands the criticism. um, And I think he has some great responses to that. I mean, in terms of the next Bachelorette, he's very on board with her. And what I was interested in asking him about is, is this a shift in the franchise? I mean, you now have a, a lead who's, again, to use the word authentic, but she does seem a bit more relatable, a little bit less, you know, she's not your typical person from L.A. who wants to be a social media influencer, which we've seen a lot from this show. And, you know, on Colton's season, they broke the fourth wall 
a lot more than they ever have. There was even during a breakup, one of the contestants asked for the cameras to leave and they listened. So then, of course, they ran the breakup on audio only. But, you know, they, <laughs> it's just a very different, you saw a lot of different moves this season. And he does think that, you know, Rob said in no way is this franchise giving up on the idea of a fairy tale, of course. But he, he did say that it's exciting to see this shift into a more realistic telling and I guess a more natural approach to dating in 2019. Well, Jackie, we're not giving up on a fairy tale either. No, it's Love at First <laughs> podcast here at TV's Top 5. Well, thank you so much, guys, for Thanks for joining us, Jackie. On. Number four. For our next topic, Dan, Netflix has canceled one day at a time. Grr. Arg. The critically praised Latino-themed reboot of the 1970s Norman Lear comedy ran for three seasons on the streamer, whose chief content officer, Ted Sarandos, addressed the cancellation with a rare statement, which read in part, this was a very difficult decision, and we're thankful to all the fans who supported the series, our partners at Sony, all the critics who embraced it. While it's disappointing that more viewers didn't discover one day at a time, I believe this series will stand the test of time. Meanwhile, producers Sony TV are going to attempt to find a new home for the series, whose first three seasons will continue to remain on Netflix. Dan, the mic is yours. <laughs> Out of the way, everyone. We're going ham. Anyway. Dan, I have never seen your face this red. That's not true. Or alternatively, I'm just really out of shape. I hope it's <laughs> no. not true. You're uh, really angry about this. No, no, no. I Look, I am angry. I'm perplexed by the way that Netflix has handled it. I'm perplexed by the way that Netflix has handled, honestly, the two previous renewals that this show did get. You know, Netflix very clearly told the showrunners, Gloria Calderon and Mike Royce, each season, basically, no one's watching the show. You need to stir up attention for the show. And that meant that basically Netflix forced the two showrunners of this show to beg for their renewal in social media every year, which is vaguely classless and has underlying implications. I mean, Mike Royce had this incredible Twitter thread a couple of days ago just about how much the show has meant to him, how rare of an opportunity it's been. And yes, please watch the show, tweet about it, write Netflix, etc. And they were begging almost immediately, like from the second week the show was out, they were telling people, look, Netflix knows if you're watching the show within the first two weeks, so you need to go and do that. And so that was... I don't know. It felt unseemly to me, but here's the thing. And we've talked about this before, and I've talked about this endlessly, and it remains true that Netflix not giving ratings is 100% their prerogative, and that is what they can do. But then when Netflix gives ratings for three shows that they say are successes, 40 million people watch, dot, dot, dot. And then, at least seven seconds of... You, which was already aired on Lifetime, I mean. And and so then, okay, so they put out a number of tweets from the at Netflix Twitter account, and they say, the choice did not come easily. We spent several weeks trying to find a way to make another season work, but in the end, simply not enough people watched to justify another season. Well, without revealing how many people watched yeah, or didn't watch. And, and so, you know, my response is that could be True. I don't know. It's possible that this is a show that has an audience that is literally my Twitter feed. And 
I, you know, my Twitter feed is still blowing up, and I assume by the time this podcast posts, it'll still be blowing up and whatever, but it is completely and totally possible because we all live in our bubbles that nobody watched this show. I don't know. On the other hand, we do all live in our bubbles, and bubbles are kind of the Netflix business model, is that they really are trying to check as many boxes as possible. Yeah, they want to have content that appeals to everyone, why they have comic book dramas, why they have multi-camera comedies, why they have stand-up specials, why they have anime, everything. They want to be your one-stop shop for content. And so one of the things that's been most consistent that people have said about this show is the feeling that it was representing audiences, not just one audience, but multiple audiences who didn't feel like they were being represented elsewhere. And that includes the Latinx audience, it includes young gay audiences, it includes family audiences, because even if some of the subject matter was grown up, it was never really adult. It always was a show that was completely and totally family friendly for mature families. So you look at the number of boxes that that show seemed to check on a representational level, and that's before you get to the fact that it really was one of the most critically acclaimed shows on TV, and that the people who watched it felt a genuine love for it, not a kind of ambivalent, I like it, not an I watch it in the background, not an it's one of the nine ABC family comedies that I, I check out, but usually I'm doing other things as it's on in the background. People loved that show and yeah, felt I mean, it was meaningful. The series has a 98% rating among critics and 91% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. For a show three seasons in to still be at that level doesn't happen often. And so the business model that Netflix has continues to simply be a mystery. And if this was a show that gave the impression of being wildly expensive or something, that would be one thing. It doesn't feel like it is. But again, I don't know. So, I mean, ultimately, does this come down to the Sony of it? Like, does it come down to Netflix wants to own its shows and this was a show they did not own? That's certainly my bet. As we saw in the statement from Ted, the lack of viewership is one piece of it. But look, everything that Netflix has been doing of late with signing people like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris and Marty Noxon and a bazillion other people to expensive overall deals, they want to own their content. They launched an animation studio in-house. They want to own their animated stuff. They don't want to outsource it to a third party and have to pay for the physical animation. They want to own every single piece of the content that they're producing, whether it's a stand-up comedy special or a scripted comedy. They want to own it. And Sony TV is an independent studio that in the past couple of years, were amid the shift to vertical integration at the broadcast networks and streaming and eventually cable networks too, they've faced an uphill battle. They've struggled to get shows on the air. They have a new leadership regime that took over, I think it was two years ago, after Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich left Sony TV to run Apple Video. And they've got a massive announcement coming in the next couple of weeks. But since then, Zach and Jamie were the people who saved Timeless. Twice it was. This is a hard era to be in for an independent studio like Sony. And my guess is that there were probably some sort of negotiations where they were asked to maybe split ownership. And maybe they wanted Netflix to take on some more of the costs and give up a stake in how much they own of the show, which is a tool that they have used to keep other content on the air for an extended period of time. When Timeless got renewed, Universal Television, which is NBC's studio counterpart, became a 50% owner on that, which means they own half of the show. So when they sell it internationally, Sony gets half that, 
Universal TV gets half that. It's profitable for them. And this probably wasn't profitable for Netflix. And again, we would have no idea. And that, again, causes the uncomfortableness of the simply not enough people watched, because that basically places the blame on audiences for not tuning in. That's simply saying, look, you needed to do a better job of getting your friends to watch this show, as opposed to what you just went through, which is a completely different thing. And, you know, you would never get Netflix going on Twitter going, yeah, we want to own our own shows and Sony just wasn't willing to cut us a good enough deal and any of that. But it still is totally disingenuous for them to say, yeah, you know, just not enough people were watching. We, you know, so yes, it does say we tried several ways to make a season work. And that's obviously that's the unspoken. It was a business negotiation thing that we couldn't do. But still, they do put the bottom line as not enough people watched. And that could, again, it could totally be true. What do I know? What do any of us know? All I know is that sex education was watched by 40 million viewers in its first month. At least one percentage of one scene or some bizarre <laughs> mathematical equation that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And the whole world watched Bird Box. So apparently they couldn't do anything about that. No, look, it wasn't Netflix's fault that Emmy voters could never find a way to nominate Rita Moreno for her performance on that show that should have been nominated three times or two times and a third one coming, that they couldn't get a nomination for Justina Machado, who also should have been nominated probably at least once for that show. But I wonder if they'd gotten a token nomination here or there for it, if that would have been the kind of thing that would have made a difference. You know, sort of it's the when John Landgraf sits up in front of us and says, we want to check one of the boxes between critical acclaim, audience, internal acclaim and audience size. Well, obviously, Netflix doesn't have the same rule, nor necessarily should they, because as John Landgraf would tell you himself, they're not playing by the same rules. But it, it's just so hard for us to compute how a show that filled such an apparently vital need in the landscape couldn't have a home on a network whose sole reason to exist is to cover as much of the landscape as humanly possible. So they're simply saying, here are these things where we knew that we had a show that was important to these people, that we aren't providing anything else for them on the same level. Okay, we're just going to let those audiences go because apparently they weren't big enough to keep a show alive. And that irks me. Yeah. And I wonder how big does it have to be to stay alive at Netflix? I mean, when you're greenlighting comedies that are sometimes so niche and in the woods, this is a big, broad family comedy. It doesn't make sense. So, I mean, if I'm Sony TV, I'm calling up all the broadcast networks right now and saying, my first call would probably be to CBS, where Gloria has had development in the past through Sony, because I believe she's got an overall deal there, and saying, we have this great show. It's got a legion of audiences. You're losing the Big Bang Theory. You have a spot on Thursdays. This is a prime spot for a multi-camera comedy. And you're the network that actually gets multi-cam comedies to work. Exactly. You know, no one else does, so stick it after the neighbors. Neighbors Neighborhood, which one is Neighborhood. that? Neighborhood. Okay, the other one was the one with the aliens that was on ABC. Right, the Dan Fogelman comedy. Exactly. And this is part of the reason that shows like One Day at a Time struggle to cut through, because there's 8 million other shows to watch, half of which are good. But it definitely does feel like a show that you could put after the neighborhood, and it could have some sort of audience. I don't know, it feels like a show that fits a lot with the kind of varied nature of NBC's programming brand. It's not... It fits right with, AB with ABC. I mean, what ABC would say is we have 
85 other family comedies, we don't necessarily need this one. Also, this one's set in the present day, so we don't know what to do with it. But all they would have to do is decide that it was set in 1963 and they just, you know, change it and stick it in the ABC comedy blocks. There are places where I feel like it ought to belong. But honestly, Netflix ought to have been one of those places. And and, and look, it's going to be a struggle for Sony to sell this elsewhere because anywhere they go, if they take it to ABC, ABC is going to want to cut the ownership. Why is Crackle not in this conversation? Like, why is Crackle never in the conversations? Does Crackle actually exist? It feels like it ought to be the repository for all of these Sony things that don't find homes, and yet they never use it for some reason. I mean, maybe Sony has Spectrum on speed dial because Mad About You landed there, LA's Finest landed there after NBC passed on the pilot last year. Who knows? Hey, we talked extensively about Spectrum last week, so we totally know what Spectrum is. Yes. Go download that podcast. We'll go deep on Spectrum. But yeah, so bottom line is just very disappointed by this. And I think Netflix thought they were handling it in a way that was polite and acknowledging of the fans. And I mean, they've never included a quote from Ted in a cancellation ever. And so I guess that's something. But anyway, I'm just disappointed. And this was a very, very, very good show that you know, didn't deserve to be begging for its life every year. And it's a pity. Yeah. Well, as always, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner segment. Number five. This week, the streamers plan on keeping everyone up late with the debut of Turn Up Charlie, Shrill, and The Act, plus returning favorites Catastrophe and Arrested Development. Showtime launches the new season of Billions. NBC hopes it has another This Is Us on its hands with The Village. And ABC turns to Marsha Clark for legal drama The Fix. Dan, what's worth watching this week? You know what's worth watching, Leslie? One One day day at at a time. time. (laughs) But guess what? I don't know that you're... Well, look, Netflix could always back down anytime they wanted to. All they could say was, we just wanted to see how much fans could get mobilized if we teased them into getting angry about it. You already have Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeting angrily about bringing the show back, and we know that... All you need to do to get Lin-Manuel Miranda on your TV show is to cancel cancel it and then bring it back. So, (laughs) so, you know, why not? You could still maybe show Netflix that you're interested. But no, the best show premiering this weekend is the fourth and final season of Amazon's Catastrophe. And this is a great extremely profane and tart and bittersweet British comedy from Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan and... If you haven't watched it, the great thing about it is that each of the four seasons is only six episodes long. They're all half-hour episodes. You could burn through it wicked fast. And yeah, it's a truly great show that does not get nearly the place in the conversation that it probably deserves to, in, in part because Amazon has always kind of treated it as this thing that they acquired from the UK that they didn't really know what it was. And it's, I would say this season has felt like it got a little bit more build up, but the first couple of seasons kind of popped up on Amazon. It was like, okay, well. Yeah, I didn't even know it was the final season and I covered this stuff. It is, it is the final season and it deals with kind of the end of the show. It deals with the passing of Carrie Fisher, who was wonderful on the show in previous seasons as the mother of uh, Rob Delaney's character. So It's just a a great show that people should check out and that it's one of those shows that will simply exist on a streaming platform and people will gradually over the years discover it and whatever. It's without any question the best thing on 
TV in the next week. But there, there are some other things, you know, if you like your sentiment troweled on with a heavy uh, shovel, you, you really might want to check out The Village, which is determined to make you cry at least 10 times in its first 44 minutes. And if you don't, that either means that you have no soul or that you have some restraint and discretion and you're a grown up, whichever, you know, not judging one way or the other. I, I think it is reasonably effective in its beating you over the head with a hammer kind of way. The act is definitely not about Marsha Clark and the O.J. Simpson trial. So, you know, if what you're going for is to see a slightly fictionalized version of the O.J. trial, they really want to insist it's it's not about No, you mean that. the fix. Fix, what did I say? The act. The act. Ah, the act is actually a better show that's on Hulu and is, I would say, as good a performance from Patricia Arquette as she gave an escape at Danamora. So the fix and the act... Of those two, I would recommend the act, not the fix. I would also recommend that people put much more effort into titling their shows so that I can tell them apart, because when I say the act, it does not make me think of a true crime drama on Hulu. It makes me think of absolutely nothing. And when I hear the fix, it makes me think, oh, it's a Carpentry reality show on ABC, which it's not. So seriously, guys, come up with better titles for your show. I don't know what to do with it. Also, there's a Pretty Little Lies sequel that's coming yes out. pretty little liars <laughs> the perfectionists which didn't actually start as a spinoff of pretty little liars but was made into one during the development process that show was in the works for like something like three years and it debuts next week on freeform lots of tv catastrophe is the best of it well that sounds like a good note to wrap things up as always thank you for listening to tv's top five the hollywood reporters tv podcast we'll be back next week and until then, please be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And if you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a review of us. And if you just want to say hi, say hi to us on Twitter. We like that too. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>